Hello, everyone. It's Angeline Chen. Welcome to Immigration Today, where I interview leaders, advocates, experts, and volunteers in immigration and immigrant rights on the issues, their experiences, and how you can make a difference. Today, we have Lindsay Toslowski, who is the executive director of the Immigrant Defenders Law Center, which is an organization founded by a dedicated group of advocates and activists interested in creating an organization on the vanguard of the movement for a public defender system for immigrants facing deportation. They are fighting back every day against the immigration system's campaign of cruelty against migrants at the border with a focus on assisting children and families. Lindsay is a social entrepreneur whose work to increase access to justice for immigrants is at the forefront of the movement for universal representation. Lindsay also served as the Overseas Operations Director at Asylum Access, an international nonprofit that fights for the rights of the refugees in the global South. She was recently named one of California's top 40 under 40 lawyers by the Daily Journal. Lindsay is a proud mother of two revolutionaries in training, and they are, and they are her inspiration to keep fighting for social justice every day. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your time. So we're going to start talking a little bit about you. And then after that, talk about the issues. Is that okay? Sure. Sounds good. Thank you. So Lindsay, where does your passion for helping immigrants stem from? You know, I get asked that question a lot and I'm, I'm always not sure exactly how to answer it um, because for me, my, my life's work in Immigrant Defenders and, and all of the work that we do really is my life. It's, um, you know, I do take breaks and I have fun with my kids, but it's something that feels very natural to me. Um, and it feels like I'm doing exactly what I've always supposed to have been doing. Um, and so every day when I get to go to work and I have the privilege of walking in with our incredible team and with all of our incredible clients and helping to you know, make the world a, a, a better and more just place every day, I feel like um, you know, I'm not even working. It's just exactly where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, like most um, people in the United States, you know, I have an immigration story in my own background, um, although farther back than than some of the folks that I work with. Um, you know, my great grandparents immigrated to the United States, um, but really the the passion for um, working and for being in this cause really you know, has a lot to do with my own kids and wanting the world to be a more just place for them. Um, and not just my kids, but everybody's kids. And so, um, yeah, it, I guess the passion just comes from knowing that this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And also, um, you know, I think that for, for people who do social justice work, oftentimes, um, you know, you can start to feel burnt out or, or feel like, you know, you're not making a difference. Um, but I really do feel like because we're able to see, um, despite how difficult the circumstances are, that our clients, whether they're still in Mexico or, or in the U.S. fighting for their right to stay here safely, um, we're able to see that they're still fighting. Um, and so it motivates me every day to, to keep fighting alongside them. That's so awesome. And when you say it was basically what you were supposed to do, when did you know that? And I know your, your great grandparents were immigrants. Did you know that when you were a teenager going to high school, like what, how, how did that happen for you? Yeah. 
I definitely didn't know exactly what type of a career I would have as far back as high school. But um, when I was in high school, I absolutely knew I wanted a career in social justice. Um, I always was really involved in a, a variety of different um, activities related to social justice work. And so um, when it comes to um, specifically immigration and migrants' rights, um, that probably started in my early 20s. I was a co-founder of a um, or a founding member of a Amnesty International chapter um, in San Diego. And as part of my role, we were doing a lot of work in Tijuana. And so this was way back in the early 2000s. Um, and so, you know, from that, I really started to see, um, you know, very early on when I was still in college, many of the issues that were facing people at the border and facing people because of borders. Um, and so I think then was where it really uh, sparked the idea in me that maybe I could make a career out of this. And um, then later when I went to law school, um, I took an immigration clinic at USC Law. And, you know, that was my second year of law school. And pretty much it's, you know, I knew that was what I was supposed to be doing. And um, I've done, you know, immigration and, and refugee rights work within the public interest sector ever since. That's great. That's great. So you did Amnesty International. You created that chapter before you went to law school? Yeah, it was when I was um, uh, at San Diego State, and it was with a whole group of incredible activists uh, in San Diego. Um, and I was, yeah, I think I was probably a, a sophomore, junior in, in college at the time. Um, and it was really amazing because you know, I was going to San Diego State. I was working full time as a as a waitress at a resort. <clears throat> and um, then, you know, every single week we would meet and we would write letters um, and get other people to write letters with us to fight back against human rights abuses happening around the world. Um, and so even though it was something happening outside of my official schooling, it was something that really informed um, not only my activism, because I was working with a lot of people that were much older than me that had done this for decades um, and done this type of work. So I got to see models of what, you know, a life of activism could look like, but it also opened my eyes to all of these human rights abuses happening all over the world um, and really got me interested in, in ways that I could help. Um, when I graduated from law school, I actually spent my first year with Asylum Access um, doing work in Ecuador uh, directly with uh, refugees who were seeking status in Ecuador, most of whom were fleeing Colombia. Mm -hmm. um, and that was my first, um, you know, that was my fellowship when I graduated. My daughter was born later that same year. Um, and so, you know, for family reasons, I needed to be back in the US. And so working on immigration really combined my interest in international human rights issues, but also um, something that I could do and make an impact and, and really make a difference from right here in Los Angeles where I live. Mm-hmm, that's amazing. So from asylum access, what happened after that? Well, I graduated, I had the luck of graduating law school in 2008 as the entire economy was collapsing mm -hmm. around us. And so um, I was at Asylum Access for uh, a year and a half, almost two years. And then um, there were no jobs whatsoever in immigration available. And so I actually got a job working at the Children's Law Center of California, um, working with kids who were uh, abused and neglected and in the foster care system. And so for 
um, a little over a year, I worked um, taking, you know, doing maybe 30 cases a day in a dependency court, um, defending kids um, and their families who were being separated because of um, allegations from the department, some of whom were fighting to be reunited, um, some of whom had suffered really horrific abuse and were going to be adopted by other families. And so um, I did that, even though I knew I wanted to do immigration, um, I sort of fell into that because it was the job that I could get at that time. And, and times were pretty tough and I had an infant daughter. Um, mm -hmm. And as soon as a job opened in immigration, it was actually to um, work at Catholic Charities doing children's immigration. Mm -hmm. And I was so excited because I had just spent a year, um, you know, defending kids in foster care um, and had really learned a lot about California state law and about the laws related to abuse and neglect. And I really wanted to be doing, doing immigration. So it was sort of felt like fate that this job became available. Um, and then when I took that job, I became one of the only lawyers in LA at the time um, who was exclusively representing unaccompanied children in my practice. Wow. Um, and so I, you know, over the next uh, several years, um, I was able to represent you know, uh, probably dozens and dozens, but I know my caseload was over a hundred at the time. So, you know, hundreds of kids who otherwise would have been facing an immigration judge alone. Um, and this was before there was any sort of large scale funding uh, to represent unaccompanied children. So for those who are familiar now in LA, uh, we have, you know, multiple agencies that represent unaccompanied children. At MDEF, we have dozens of attorneys who only represent unaccompanied children. Mm -hmm. um, so it's one of the populations that there's been a lot of investment in the last 10 years to make sure that they get representation. But at that time, there were probably only less than five attorneys that were even doing these cases at all. Um, and I think just a couple of us who were doing it full time. And so, um, for me, it was really eye-opening to the need that existed specifically for that population, but also for their families and also for their, their uncles who came on their own and were single adults facing deportation. And it was really mm -hmm. the beginning of um, what inspired me to ultimately, um, you know, down the road a little bit, uh, found Immigrant Defenders. Wow. And you, you work so much with children. You have, you've mentioned having children of your own. Um, you know, as a mother or when you became a mother, did that change kind of the perspective of, of helping immigrants or how, how, if it changed, how did it change for you? You know, I think that for me, um, I had my daughter, uh, when I was in my twenties and I was, you know, a fellow in Ecuador when I found out I was pregnant with her. And so my life changed pretty drastically, um, in some ways, but in some ways it just, um, you know, she came along for the ride of what the sort of mission that I was on um, and and gave me more inspiration to do it. I do think that, you know, undoubtedly, when you have a child um, and you're you're representing children and you have a child that's the same age, for example, that happens to me a lot. Mm -hmm. um, you know, recently at the the children's shelters that were set up, these large scale shelters in Pomona and Long Beach, um, I often would find actually sibling sets that were the same ages as my own kids. Uh -huh. um, and I would be sitting there with, you know, a 12 year old girl and a six year old boy. And I would be seeing this little girl like taking care of her brother. And I would, you know, mm -hmm. undoubtedly like the first thing that would creep into my head was, 
you know, would my daughter do the same thing with my son? And I know she would. Um, and I think what it did for me was um, just makes you want to fight that much harder because you know exactly what you would want someone to do for your own kids if, you know, by the accident of their birth on, on the side of one border or another, um, we found ourselves in the same situation as these families. If I found myself in the situation that I know a lot of kids who end up in shelters for unaccompanied children were in, and I know what their parents were in, it was a situation where they knew that they could not keep their kids safe where they were, whether that was in Northern Mexico in a shelter or on the streets or in their home country, you know, making the decision to send your child ahead to safety, um, betting against the odds that they'll be okay on the journey there, that they'll be treated humanely when they get there. Um, I can only imagine the desperation in that decision. So yeah. when I see those two kids sitting in front of me that look so much like my own kids, um, I think of their mom or their dad and the decision they must have made and what they must have hoped for. And I hope that my role as you know an immigration attorney who's there to protect their rights can help you know what they hoped for to come true. Because I know if it was me, what I would want is for my kids to be kept safe and reunited with family as soon as possible. And mm -hmm. so that's what I see my role as to make sure that those kids have the information that they need to be kept safe and that we're fighting for them to be with their families as quick as possible. Yes. Yes. I can't even imagine my, um, I asked that question to, to moms because I, I you know, it, it's the same way for me. I have a six-year-old and at the time um, when the zero tolerance policy was instituted but from the Trump administration and they were separating families. My child was three at the time and I just couldn't imagine him being yeah. taken away from me and then not being able to reunite and me being deported. I just couldn't believe it. It just really opened my eyes and made, made it super personal. Um, I mean, I've been an immigration attorney for many years, but it just, this, it just made it so, so personal. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about what the Immigrant Defenders Law Center does? Sure. So uh, myself and my co-founder, Susan Alva, we opened in 2015 um, with a really simple idea that no immigrant should be forced to face an immigration judge and an unjust immigration system alone. Um, and so what we really wanted was to create a, a model for what could be a public defender system. Mm -hmm. in immigration court. I had worked for many years and, and with Susan and with Erica Pinero of Al Otro Lado and, mm -hmm. and many others at other organizations. And I saw that oftentimes immigration nonprofits were housed within like larger social services agencies. Um, and it didn't give them the ability to really be um, organizations that could grow to meet the need. And so we founded Immigrant Defenders with the idea that this would be the first sort of outpost of a model of an immigrant uh, defender system that could eventually be grown um, when we have, you know, either a uh, a change in the law or we have a Supreme, you know, we have Gideon for immigration court where we have um, an actual uh, right to um, immigration representation for everyone who can't afford a lawyer. And to me, that's so important because um, for, you know, somebody who's going into an immigration courtroom, you have a trained government attorney trying to deport you on one side, you have a judge um, that's not really a judge, they're a government attorney wearing a robe sitting on the bench 
And um, like that is a system that is truly stacked against you. And people going in there who don't speak the language, who are not familiar with the law, um, just have less than a fighting chance. They have no chance um, of success. And we know that when they have a lawyer who's trained, who does this, who's um, you know a skilled deportation defense lawyer, um, they have a fighting chance at gaining safety for them and their family, um, a fighting chance to stay here. And so that was really the inspiration and what we hoped for. I can say personally too, it was also came after um, years of being a deportation defense lawyer, specifically mm -hmm. for kids, um, but also in the detained context and watching you know, children that were so tiny that they would sit on the chair and their feet didn't even touch the floor, um, looking at a judge and being told that they needed to represent themselves. Um, and, you know, the experience of sitting in courtrooms day after day and watching that and then going to Adelanto um, and seeing, you know, person after person shackled at the ankles and the, the wrists coming in um, and looking absolutely terrified um, and through an interpreter being told that they needed to represent themselves. For me, it was this breaking point, like we knew that something needs to change. And so MDEF, we hoped, would be the beginning of that change. Um, MDEF now has grown. We started in my living room um, and in wow. a couple other living rooms with, there were basically uh, six of us who left um, another organization and we um, started with like borrowed laptops in our living rooms. Um, we had a lot of support from the Vera Institute of Justice because they also saw um, that an organization like this could be um, really powerful for the movement for universal representation. Um, but we started out with us six. We had hundreds of cases that we inherited on day one um, as part of our agreement with, um, with our funders in order to get them to agree to move the funding over to this brand new organization. Um, and we had a lot of cases and no staff, which is not a good combo. Um, but we were able to survive and we've grown um, since then. And we, you know, and we were able to, to make it work in those early weeks and months. We went into, we still met all of our obligations going into the children's shelters and doing know your rights presentations and meeting with every single kid. You know, none of our clients missed a court date. We didn't miss any court dates. We made it work. We eventually hired more staff. Um, and now MDEF has gone from, you know, six of us making it work in living rooms in 2015 to, um, you know, we just had our sixth anniversary this past July. And wow. we now have over 120 staff. We have offices in San Diego, Santa Ana, Riverside, and LA. Um, we have, you know, a whole bunch of different projects. Um, our children's representation project is still our largest. We represent more than a thousand kids every single year. Um, at any given time, we have more than a thousand child clients, and then we have wow. more than a thousand adults and families that we represent. Um, we have now funding from the state of California, from the city of Long Beach, the city of Santa Ana, many different localities that see investing in deportation defense is actually good for communities, that it helps to keep families together. It helps to keep homeowners in their homes. It helps to keep um you know, businesses afloat when uh, a lot of times we see when people are detained by ICE 20 years after they, you know, entered the U.S., um, it makes, you know, entire families go into this cycle of poverty um, that doesn't need to happen when we can have communities investing and in making sure that that fathers and grandfathers and mothers and aunts um, stay out of ICE prisons. 
Um, and then we also have some of our newer projects. Um, you know, in 2018, we started our um, cross-border initiative, which works with families in Tijuana. Um, mm. And we, um, you know, have done a lot of work around the, the as I call them, the migrant persecution protocols, mm -hmm. officially known as MPP or the uh, Remain in Mexico program. Um, we've also um, started a deported veterans project which is something that most people don't even know needs to exist. Um, mm -hmm. But it's for veterans who following their service were deported from the United States. And we have an entire unit that does post-conviction relief um, where we try and overturn um, unconstitutional convictions um, or get um, uh, people pardons um, from the governor, for example, mm -hmm. in order to allow people to return um, post-deportation or to um, you know, have a defense in, in immigration court. Um, so we've grown tremendously from um, what we initially set out to do. It's really succeeded beyond my, my wildest imagination. But um, I think one of the things that's helped us to sustain that growth is really that we um, have focused always on preventing deportation and representing mm -hmm. people in deportation. We don't do any affirmative cases um, mm -hmm. unless they're related to someone's deportation case. Um, we, you know, all of our cases are um, deportation defense. And because we've kind of stuck to that, it's allowed us to continue to replicate our model over and over, um, mm -hmm. which allows us to have sort of sustainable growth um, as an organization. Wow. Well, that's amazing. And happy anniversary, six years. Thank you. <laughs> um, 120 staff members. That's a lot. That's huge. That's um, yeah. impressive. No, that's very, I, I'm so happy for you, for what you and your team have done. Um, I, you mentioned some of the issues and then we're going to go through them one by one. Um, sure. What you mentioned the migrant protection program, um, MPP. Can you elaborate on what that is? And then we'll go in, maybe go into what the Biden administration tried to do about it. And then there was a U.S. Supreme Court decision. So, but we can start yeah. with the basics on what is MPP. That'd be great. Yeah. So um, under the Trump administration, um, as, a, as an attempt to um, continue to dismantle our asylum system, um, and actually in this case, they successfully dismantled our asylum system by um, creating a policy by which people who um, entered the U.S. seeking protection, seeking asylum, um, and this applied across the board to everyone, including, you know, families with children. Um, uh, the only sort of exceptions to it were for people with mental illnesses. It only applied to some nationalities, um, but it did apply to um, all of the Central American um, countries, which were the majority of asylum seekers um, in 2018 and 2019 that were coming to the border um, when this policy went into place. But the policy essentially um, set up courts all along our border um, in across Texas and in San Diego. Um, and when people came seeking protection, they would be forced back into Mexico um, to wait for their asylum hearing um, in often deadly and dangerous conditions in northern Mexico. So in Tijuana, one of the most dangerous cities in, in Latin America, um, people would be come, they would seek protection, and then they would be immediately pushed back 
across the border and told to wait in Tijuana, sometimes weeks or months um, for an asylum hearing. Um, then they would go to that asylum hearing. There were all sorts of due process issues um, that you know, have been, are continuing to be litigated, um, including um, MDEF v. Mayorkas, which is a case that's around access to counsel in the uh, MPP process, because we don't mm -hmm. think that there's any way a program like this could, could allow for proper access to counsel. Mm -hmm. um, but people would be forced to wait in Mexico um, and then they would come in for their hearings. Um, and eventually, um, you know, the Biden administration, after a campaign that, that many of us participated in um, during his uh, campaign and during his um, first days in office, he made a day one promise to end the uh, MPP program. He said that this program was inhumane. His wife, um, Dr. Biden had been down to the border, um, I believe it was in Juarez, and had actually gone and seen families in this program and had made statements against it. Um, and so we felt um, good about that. It took a long process to dismantle. There were still thousands of people in Mexico um, over a period of many months um, in, uh, through a UNHCR process. Those families began to be able to enter the U.S., um, mm -hmm. And many of us, our practices went from, you know, defending people in their asylum cases in MPP to helping people get out of MPP as the program was dismantled. Mm -hmm. um, and then unfortunately, um, in the state of Texas uh, sued the government over the end or the closure of this program. Um, and a Fifth Circuit Court um, said uh, that you know, agreed with the state of Texas and um, made an order essentially requiring the Biden administration to um, move forward um, with the, the re-implementation of this program. And the Biden administration sought to stay at the Supreme Court. Um, and that was denied um, last week, I think, maybe 10 yeah, days ago. So. Um, and that means that the Biden administration now um, has to make good faith efforts to um, restart the MPP program. Um, many of us um, believe that, um, you know, the right course of action here will be for the Biden administration to um, reissue a new memo ending the MPP program that hopefully would survive another challenge. Um, but, mm. um, you know, in in the event that they do have to make good faith efforts, we hope that those good faith efforts will be, um, you know, a series of studies that will look at what restarting the program would look at like, um, because, you know, we all saw the horrors of this program. We saw that, you know, children, that parents, that everybody who was in this program, um, it was so dangerous. We know that people were kidnapped. We know people died. Um, we know that this was really the nail in the coffin for the asylum protection system in the United States. To, so to under a democratic um, administration, have them restart this program would really be throwing the towel in on figuring out a way to welcome people with dignity to the United States. And so we are going to keep fighting um, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, there are several lawsuits um, that have been um, fighting to ensure that this case or that MPP, that the program never um, continues to exist. 
Um, but, you know, we're right now hoping that the Biden administration will see um, just how dangerous this is and really do absolutely everything that they can um, to make sure that no family, no person um, is ever, you know, pushed back into Mexico when they came to to seek safety. Yeah, I hope so, too. It seemed like when the U.S. Supreme Court came decision came out, people were devastated and people want to know what's next. So I'm glad that there is an opportunity for the Biden administration to reissue a new memo. We, you know, hope we need to pressure them to do that. I myself have also met people um, in the MPP program in Tijuana when I was there a couple of months ago uh, through a volunteer group that I co-founded called Rise to Reunite, visiting a migrant shelter in Tijuana and just meeting the people who were waiting um, well, waiting to even seek asylum and also in the MPP program. So it's, I know thousands of people are there. It's, it's not a good situation. So things really need to change. Um, so my understanding is let's go, okay, let's move to the unaccompanied minors. Sure. Um, there was a time when it was all over the news that there were thousands of unaccompanied minors being held in convention centers, and I know that attorneys from your organization, um, they were doing intakes with them. And, and what, what were your attorneys able to do um, after that and for these minors? Yeah, so you know, this has been a, a situation unlike any I've ever seen in, in my more than 10 years of working with unaccompanied children. We've seen um, you know, this year, because of the incredible backups um, of children at border patrol stations where they were being held in completely inhumane conditions, um, you know, many of them, some of them, I think the longest we saw was a child who had spent 27 days in a border patrol facility sleeping on the floor without adequate access to food. Um, that crisis that was happening um, caused the Biden administration to open these emergency intake sites. Um, some of them um, were opened in places like Fort Bliss and in Pecos, Texas, um, and those facilities themselves have been plagued with um, issues related to conditions and um, to delays of kids ending up, you know, just languishing there instead of being reunited with their families. Mm. Um, but, you know, here in California, um, we've had two facilities open, one at the Long Beach Convention Center and one at the Pomona Fairplex, which is a large fairgrounds in eastern L.A. County. Mm -hmm. um, those two facilities have been relatively um, more humane, um, and largely that's because they're here in California. And I always mm -hmm. say that kids are safer here in California mm -hmm. than most other places around the country. And that's in part because we have a lot of local government oversight. Um, you know, in the case of Long Beach, um, Mayor Garcia, the mayor of Long Beach um, and the Long Beach City Council, it's a facility that's owned um, by the city of Long Beach. Mm -hmm. And so they were very involved. They made sure that um, conditions were optimal. They made sure that, um, you know, they were actually sending out tweets, letting people know how long children were at the facility before being reunited with family. Mm -hmm. They were sending out numbers on the daily census. And in Pomona, we've seen similar with the County of Los Angeles lending their Department of Children and Family Services to help set up the program that um, is reuniting children much more quickly um, with their families than any of the other sites around the country. We also mm -hmm. you know, have Immigrant Defenders there, which is we're able 
uh, Long Beach has now closed. It closed at the end of July. Um, but in Pomona, that one will stay open through the end of the year. And we're there every single day. We do a Know Your Rights presentation that focuses on orienting the kids to where they are, what the process is for reunification, what mm -hmm. the immigration court process looks like, telling them about some defenses that may apply to them. Um, and then we offer as many kids as we possibly can up to our capacity um, individual consultations where we um, you know, go through all of the information about why they came to the United States, um, why, you know, who they hope to reunite with, where they're going to go. And then we give them some information about, um, in their particular case, what defenses they may qualify for, what options they have. Um, and then we take all of that information and we um, make best efforts to link each and every child with a pro bono attorney or with attorneys in their area. Um, mm -hmm. where, you know, if they're going to New York, we'll give them our colleagues in New York that do the same work as us if they're going to Maryland. Fortunately, a lot of the kids go to places around the country where there are not uh, nonprofit immigration legal services available um, mm -hmm. because we, you know, have not achieved universal representation, mm -hmm. but we give them written materials that help them to understand, you know, what options they will have if they have to proceed pro se um, in their case without an attorney. Um, and so we do that. And then for the kids who are staying here locally in California, um, in Southern California specifically, we will end up representing many of them. And in fact, last weekend, we had um, an event at uh, Shoreline Park in Long Beach where we had uh, more than 50 kids who had been um, housed at the Long Beach Convention Center who had been released to Southern California, uh, came to an event that we organized and they, um, every single one of them, signed representation documents and left that event with a lawyer, um, either mm. from IMDEF or with one of our partner organizations. Um, that day we had the International Institute of Los Angeles and uh, CHIRLA, the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights, um, mm. both were there and we made sure that every child left with a lawyer. And we also had um, our friends from This Is About Humanity brought Minnie and Mickey and face painting and gifts mm. for all of the kids. But we also importantly had a vaccine clinic. We had, mm -hmm. um, you know, the County Department of Mental Health. We had LAUSD. We had more than a dozen kids enrolled in Medi-Cal right there at the event. Um, so we were really trying to, um, you know, not only make sure that all of these kids got a lawyer, but also um, make sure that they know that they're welcome here in Los Angeles, that we're happy that they're here. We're happy that they're safe. We're very happy that they're with their families now. Um, and we're really trying to wrap them with services as a way to show them that they're, you know, welcome here in California. So that was wow. a really fun event. And it was so nice to see so many of the kids that the last time I saw them, they were, you know, in a convention center mm -hmm. asking when they would be with their families. And then we saw them, you know, show up, you know, coming out of uh, Uber with their tias. And it was just, mm -hmm. um, it was really great. Oh my gosh. That's beautiful. Um, where, where are these children coming from? Are these the ones, the, the 50, like where were they coming from and how old were they? So the Long Beach um, Convention Center had a lot of younger kids um, relative to other uh, facilities. Most unaccompanied children are 15 or 16 years old. Mm -hmm. um, but in Long Beach, because it was a relatively nicer facility than many of the ones that have opened in Texas and elsewhere, um, there were 
many younger kids and sibling sets. So um, we saw a lot of kids who were, you know, under the age of 10. Um, some of them, usually between five and 10, there weren't smaller kids at Pomona. They actually do have kids from one to four as well. Um, many of these kids, the vast majority are from either Honduras, Guatemala, or El Salvador. Um, they have come to the U.S. sometimes with their parents to the border. And then because of Title 42, um, the CDC order that has essentially closed down asylum again, um, and this mm -hmm. time something that the Biden administration has continued to implement with um, absolutely you know, no shame, apparently, in, in continuing to implement that Trump era policy. But Title 42 has made it so that if a parent you know, flees El Salvador, comes to the border with their children, um, they get to northern Mexico and the door is just shut in their face. There is no safe option for them as a family to access asylum. And so mm -hmm. what we see is um, some of those parents, as the conditions deteriorate um, in northern Mexico, as their kids get sick, as they see you know, friends and families and sometimes themselves be kidnapped and harmed, um, they make the decision to send their children ahead. Sometimes it's also kids who've made the journey on their own. We do see some kids who have one parent here in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and, so, you know, sometimes it's that they were living with their grandma in El Salvador or Honduras and grandma died. And then the parent is in the U.S. And so the child mm -hmm. has to make that journey in order to reunite with the only person that can care for them. Um, what we always, you know, I would say that uh, the only commonality among all of these children is that um, what they were fleeing uh, was so dangerous that it made sense. It was logical to take the risk of this dangerous journey into the unknown, into the, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Um, and so, um, yeah, there's a, it's a big variety. The vast majority from Central America. We do see some kids from other countries like Nicaragua, Venezuela. Ecuador, um, but the majority from Central America and, and, you know, all of them having suffered, you know, the trauma of this journey. Um, mm -hmm. And so what we hope for those kids when we see them in the convention center is that they can be reunited with family quickly um, and really begin that, that healing journey um, because it's a long haul and, and you're in deportation proceedings while you do it. And that's another reason why the having a lawyer is so important because the entire deportation system is traumatizing for anyone, but for a child who's made that journey, who's been through the shelter system, then, you know, a few months after they finally get settled with their family to have to go back into an immigration court and navigate that system alone is really cruel. You mentioned that there's some kids who are ages one to four. And yeah. are they coming in with their older siblings or cousins? And I mean, how would a four-year-old four come to the border? Yeah, so the most of the time, that's usually when they're coming with uh, non-related, um, either friends of the family, um, sometimes with coyotes who are uh, smugglers. Mm -hmm. um, often, though, it will be with an older sibling who's also an unaccompanied child. Um, for the cases where we see you know, parents who are trapped in northern Mexico sending their children ahead, you know, mm -hmm. they're bringing them, you know, close to a port of entry and then sending, you know, and they could be sending children ahead. And so they, if it's a very young child, they're usually with an older sibling. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a variety of circumstances that can lead to a child that young being in custody. Um, 
that's usually what it is, is that they've, they're either with another child or they came with someone who was um, bringing them to the United States and that was not their parent. And if they don't have an attorney, they would go to court by themselves. I mean, basically be at, on the stand sitting um, by themselves. I've, I mean, I've, I've literally seen, sat, yeah, I've yeah. sat in court and watched uh, a crying infant who was the only defendant in their deportation case be held um, by a social worker that works for the government um, at you know the table where the respondents um, sit. And so it is really, um, yeah, it's literally like uh, a crying baby can be a defendant who's expected to represent themselves. That doesn't make any sense. They can't even talk. Right. It makes no sense at all. And it's, uh, you know, one of the absurdities that um, I feel like people should have to have, to, you know, that's one of the reasons we bring people sometimes to immigration court just to observe, because I don't think people realize when I say that I've seen that I've seen that multiple times and I've seen it in a courtroom in downtown Los Angeles. I guarantee that most of the people walking around Los Angeles in this, you know, blue liberal city don't realize that in a few blocks away in a courtroom, there's a baby that's expected to represent themselves in their deportation case crying. And one of the things I will say is that a lot of times immigration judges, um, whether it's, you know, a baby on their own or just a small child, even when they're with their parents, they'll often tell um, the parent, you know, do you have someone else who can bring the baby um, out of the out of the courtroom? Um, they can wait in the waiting room. And I always feel like, you know, they're saying it as if um, they're being nice, like the baby doesn't need to be in here. But I also feel like an immigration judge who's going to order a baby deported should have to sit there and listen to that baby cry in their courtroom. They should have to like look the baby in the eyes as they make these incredibly monumentous decisions about the fate of the rest of their life. Um, it seems like too easy for the immigration judges to say, can you please hide what I'm actually doing by having that crying infant go to the waiting room? But the immigration judge can't try to find pro bono um, representation for that infant? I mean, they could, but you They seen- could. Um, so in, in the cases where the child's still in government custody, um, immigrant defenders will appear as friend of court. And we can um, enter representation, and we often do for any young children. Um, but then that is, you know, stretching our capacity beyond what we... Um, normally are able to do. And so um, we do, um, in most cases, we will enter representation if we have an extremely young child. Um, We also work with another agency called the Young Center to ensure that that child gets a child advocate appointed for them um, Mm -hmm. that can help to uh, let the court know what's in the best interests of the child. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, all of the work that we do is that type of work where we're entering representation for kids. Um, that's a lot of times outside of what the government pays for the government pays for, or legal orientations for the children. They, Mm -hmm. um, pay for someone to appear as friend of court, but they don't pay for representation for every single child. Um, so we oftentimes will use like our fundraising money, um, to be able to support those kinds of cases. 
yeah, you end up using the resources that you have and that you, you know, and supporters and volunteers to, to donate to that instead of it really should come from the government. Um, yeah. So for the, for the unaccompanied minors, so you mentioned you had an event, you had about 50 um, unaccompanied minors, they were reunited with, you know, family. What happens when um, an unaccompanied minor doesn't have any family and you're representing them? Like what, what happens to them? Yeah, so um, for kids who have a a legal mechanism to stay in the U.S., meaning they um, are found during our consultation to qualify for asylum, um, to qualify for special immigrant juvenile status or another form of relief from deportation, um, we are able to make a referral from them from the shelter to go into a long-term foster care, um, a federal government program. Um, and they go to a foster family um, that cares for them while they fight their immigration case. Um, mm-hmm. So in Los Angeles, in, in San Bernardino and Riverside, we actually have some of the largest um, programs in the country, more than 100 kids um, that are in long-term foster care. And they live with local families. They go to local schools um, and they're represented by MDEF, uh in all of their deportation proceedings. And so we... Most of them were seeking asylum or special immigrant juvenile status, which is a form of um, a visa for children who've been abandoned, abused or neglected by one or both parents mm-hmm. and whose it's in their best interest to remain in the U.S. So um, there is a program available. Unfortunately, um, you know, for us here, we're able to get more kids into that program because we have local shelters that work very closely, but there just aren't enough. Um, long-term foster care beds around the country to make that a viable option for kids who are held um, in other parts of the country. So it is something that needs to be expanded, but mm-hmm. it is an option that's available um, for kids. And and it's much more humane than keeping them in shelters and in those yeah. congregate care settings for long periods of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and can you um, share a story of someone or a family that you have helped that have touched you personally? Sure. Um, let's see. Uh, one of the, the cases that um, has really touched me um, personally is I had a, a young uh, girl who I met at a shelter in Tijuana um, in 2018. And um, she just the moment I met her at the shelter, she was just this like light in this really dark place. She was just so, you know, vivacious and wonderful. And she just really, she reminded me of my own daughter and um, they were the same age at the time. And so um, I started talking to her and I talked to her mom. And um, unfortunately at that time, um, it was when they had come as part of the caravan in 2018. And there were very few options. There was a metering policy in place um, there were people having to wait months and months. They had already gotten a number to be put on the list to wait, but it was going to be months before they could go anywhere. Um, and they were just a, this young mom and her, her daughter traveling by themselves. And I just, you know, meeting them that day, recognized the real vulnerability of their situation. Um, and so I kept in touch with her. And every time I would go down to the shelter, I would see her for, you know, a few weeks went by. Um, And then we had an opportunity to 
um, to help a few folks uh, present to try and get processed for asylum. Um, mm -hmm. on a day because Representative um, Jayapal had come down to Tijuana and mm -hmm. she had offered to um, help to present some families um, to try to, you know, force CBP to take um, these families because uh, they, because they were particularly vulnerable um, and to also show that, you know, the metering system was actually illegal Mm -hmm. um, and should not exist. The metering meaning that, you know, only letting in a certain number of people each day and forcing people to wait on a list. Mm -hmm. And so um, when Representative Jayapal came, they already had families picked out, but um, I was at Alotrolado's offices and hanging out with, you know, my good friends, Nicole and Erica, and mm -hmm. uh, the we found out that one of the families didn't show up for whatever reason they couldn't get uh, transport. And so I literally jumped in an Uber and like went over to the shelter, which was pretty far away from the offices. Um, and I was running through the shelter looking for this mom and the daughter. Um, I eventually found the mom. Uh, she was like serving lunch because she was one of the volunteers in the shelter. And we like looked everywhere, found the daughter, packed their bags up, left like half their stuff behind because we couldn't even bring it all and we couldn't pack it quickly enough. Mm. Um, and I just told them, I think this is your shot. This is your chance. Mm. Um, and so we jumped in the Uber. We went um, to the port of entry and um, it was, you know, both Nicole and I were there and Representative Shayapal was there. Um, some other kids that that we eventually represented were there presenting as unaccompanied children and um, and there was another asylum seeker. And um, we, you know, a long story short, um, Representative Shayapal, who's such a badass, um, was able mm -hmm. to, um, you know, really put her foot down and she she made CBP process everybody who mm -hmm. was there. Um, and so this mom and her daughter, um, you know, were finally allowed into safety that day. Um, and I just remember, like, you know, it was such a chaotic day. Um, and I was so happy for them and just so relieved um, when I saw her finally go through. And she sort of like walked partway into the port of entry um, and the Border Patrol agents or CBP was right there. And then she ran back for a second to give me a hug. And then she like ran in and it was just really, you know, it was really sweet. Um, and then later, you know, they, they made it to the U.S. They were going to Los Angeles um, and a couple weeks down the road, um, they came to my office uh, uh, to sign up to get, you know, hooked up with their lawyer from IMDEF who's going to represent them in their case, but um, also just to say hi. And it was, mm. you know, we've, I've had a few moments like that where it comes full circle where I see the families in Tijuana and then are there when they, they finally get their shot at safety. Um, and then I see them, you know, and just this little girl, she was so sweet. And she gave me another big hug when mm. I saw her in the office. Um, and she just looked so um, relaxed compared to how I had seen her every time before that. Um, she, even though she had always been this very lively child, um, mm. she just looked like so much more relaxed and you could tell that she finally felt safe. Um, and so I just think of that family a lot. Um, and, you know, they're, they're continuing to fight their case now. Um, they still haven't gained, you know, complete safety or an ability to stay here forever, but mm -hmm. um, they're that much closer. And, um, you know, I think that um, when I think of their case, I just think of, you know, it, it shouldn't take um, me having a personal connection with someone in a shelter 
and then like, you know, jumping in an Uber and going and picking them up and then having a representative of Congress um, be there to allow somebody to seek asylum, to allow someone to seek protection. So while I'm like so happy that we were able to make that happen, I also recognize the absurdity um, of what it took for that family to be able to, you know, exercise their human right to seek asylum. Right, right. I mean, it really shouldn't be that hard, right? Yeah. I mean, oh, thank you for sharing that story. Um, uh, now we're towards the end. I wanted to, for you to let our listeners know how they can help. Like, how can people help? Attorneys, non-attorneys, um, translators, or just regular people, you know, well, how can people help? Yeah. So, you know, there's lots of ways. One thing to do is definitely follow us on all of our um, social media channels. Um, mm-hmm. We're at MDEF on Twitter and at MDEF underscore Law Center um, on Instagram. And we often will post um, opportunities there, including, you know, the event in Long Beach that we had just a few weeks ago or just last weekend. Um, we had a lot of volunteers who came and helped us with um, coordinating the entire event and we're able to to meet the families. Um, we also have opportunities sometimes where um, it can be something as simple as our client needs a ride to immigration court. Mm. A lot of people don't realize how challenging that can be um, for families. And if you don't get to immigration court on time, you actually can be will be deported in your absence. Yep. And so it's so important um, to just do that really basic thing that will just take a couple hours of your time um, to help our clients get to immigration court or to their asylum hearings um, in uh, Tustin. Um, Mm -hmm. We also, we do use volunteer interpreters. Um, We, um, and we oftentimes when it's a language we don't use often, um, we will post those opportunities and ask for assistance. Um, We, all of our attorneys and staff are bilingual in Spanish and English, but of course we have lots of other languages um, that, that we do from time to time need assistance with. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we don't use pro bono attorneys on individual cases, um, mm-hmm. but we do use pro bono attorneys on um, any of our appellate and um, our appellate work related to our immigration cases. So we're always looking for um, pro bono attorneys who are interested in doing appellate cases, um, who are interested in co-counseling with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do always use volunteers um, when we have um, attorney volunteers um, for assistance at the um, different uh, events we have to do like legal screenings to take pro bono cases that are non-MDEF cases. So for example, mm-hmm. in Long Beach this weekend, um, we did uh, seek out um, uh, individual attorneys who were interested in being linked to families so we can send cases that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they are that, you know, they are the attorney's case, not an MDEF case any longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, yeah, the best way is really to, to keep a lookout on our social media. We always post our volunteer opportunities there. And of course, you know, financial support is always welcome. It allows us to um, do, you know, all of the pro bono cases that we do that fall outside of the, the contracts and grants that we have, um, you know, every- Every single week, we get calls from from families. We get calls from partner organizations asking, "Can you take this case? Can you all please take this case?" 
Um, oftentimes when the cases are like too complicated to be um, placed with individual pro bono attorneys, we will end up taking the cases because um, we know that they need someone with a lot of experience to take that case. Mm -hmm. um, we're only able to do that because of, you know, support that we get from the community. So if folks are interested in financially supporting us, it's at amdef.org, amdef.org slash donate. Um, and we, you know, always are, are happy to put people's money to good use. Yes, yes, thank you. We're definitely going to include all of those links that you mentioned um, on our podcast bio. Uh, thank you, Lindsay, so much for your time and dedication. And just, you know, I, I want me personally want to support you in any way possible. I know our listeners will too. So hopefully we can have you on again. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a, a privilege and an honor to be on the podcast and to be able to speak to everyone about this work. So thank you. This podcast is intended for general education and informational purposes only and should not be regarded as either legal advice or a legal opinion. You should not act upon or use this publication or any of its contents for any specific situation. Recipients are cautioned to obtain legal advice from their legal counsel with respect to any decision or course of action contemplated in a specific situation. Clark Hill PLC and its attorneys provide legal advice only after establishing an attorney-client relationship through a written attorney-client engagement agreement. This recording does not establish an attorney-client relationship with any recipient. Okay.